So scars do tell a story. So we're going to do something a little risky today, all right? First of all, disclaimer, remember you're in church and we're trying to keep a family-friendly environment. But who has a scar in a place they're willing to show? Let me change that. Who has a scar in a place where it would be appropriate for you to show? Not willing to show, but appropriate to show. Who's got a scar? Somebody's got a scar from something? All right, back here. All right, so Cindy, what scar do you... Stand up, Cindy. What scar do you have? Pretty big scar on my leg from when I broke it. Okay. So you broke it when you were a kid? What were you doing? I was on the back of a pickup truck. And you would have guessed, right? But my cousin was going to show my sister that he knew how to crank it up, and he did, and it backed into a building, and I sort of got trapped. All right, and you've got the scar to prove it. All right, any other scar? I got a little nervous when she started lifting her pant leg. I got to be honest. All right, Kyle, what scar do you have back here? Okay, you got one on your hand? I was trying to chase a chicken, and he turned around and. You wait. You were trying to chase a chicken? And then he turned around and attacked me. And the chicken turned around and attacked you? Were you raised on a farm? In the Philippines, yes. In the Philippines, okay, all right, and the chicken attacked you. Yes. All right, and scar to prove it. Anybody else got another scar? Liam, you got a scar? He's not volunteering himself, though. What, what scar do you have? Where is it on your hand? What, how did you get that scar? Um, I was cutting something, and every time I did so you, it's like a callus, like from, from working hard. That's right, good. That was good. Any other scars? All right. Betty, you got a scar? What's your scar? I've got a scar here where the doctor cut my throat um, <laughs> so that he could fuse my spine. I could, have thought, I could have thought of a better story that you could have told about that scar, but that's probably the honest story. Okay, so you have a scar? What's your scar? There's one on my eyebrow. Yeah, how'd you get it? Um, I fell off. Hit you, and you remember that well, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So we we tend to remember uh, the stories that are associated with the scars that we have. So I've got a scar on my hand here from uh, when I was doing dishes. I was in high school. I was doing dishes um, at my mom's house and uh, was washing a glass. And as I was washing the inside of the glass, the glass broke. And it cut my hand. I remember that. I remember who was in the kitchen. I remember everything about that. Uh, and I have that scar. And every time I look at that scar, I think about that kitchen. Isn't that funny how your mind works that way? It kind of takes you to a place. I have another scar somewhere up here on my forehead. It's a, it's a really small scar. But um, this scar happened when I was just a, a, little, a little toddler. So I was in a, in a walker. Uh, you know, you put the kid in. The, you, walkers used to have wheels. And so, because that's a brilliant idea. Put a, put a toddler in a contraption with wheels on it. So I was in a walker, and um, I, I, apparently the door to the basement was open, and I had not quite figured out gravity. And so I um, took that walker straight down the basement stairs, and, uh, and some of you are like, that explains a lot about him. <laughs> like, I, can't, I totally understand a lot about him now. But here's what's interesting about this scar on my forehead. I have no memory of that whatsoever. I was too young. And here's what's even more interesting about that, is that nobody who was there is still alive today. All the people who were there are gone. They're all gone. But yet this scar is the evidence that I have of that event. And by knowing, by having the scar and by people telling me about what happened, I remember it. And the scar is sort of evidence of that. Um, 
part of the question when we come to church as Christians, and maybe if you're not a Christian, one of the things uh, that we kind of ask ourselves is, how do we know what we know? How do we, how do we know what we know? How do we know the things that we believe? How do we know what we know? Now, there's a name for this, and it's called epistemology, and it's the study of how we know what we know. And there are three basic ways that we know what we know. The first one is by rational deduction. Okay, now I did not have this when I was a toddler, but now I know that if I were to jump off this stage, rational deduction tells me I'm going to go down and not up. And there's scientific ways to prove that, but I don't need science to prove that. Rational deduction tells me. So one way that we know what we know is rational deduction. Another way that we know what we know is through empirical investigation. Basically, this is, I'm going to do some research, I'm going to do some study, and I'm going to get all the facts and all the data, and I'm going to prove what I know. I'm going to, I'm going to evaluate it, scientific method, I'm going to figure it out. So rational deduction, empirical investigation, and the third way that we know what we know is through testimony. Now, we don't often think about this one, but a lot, especially when it comes to history, we know what we know because people tell us, right? I mean, somebody told me the story about me walking down the basement steps, and I've got the scar here that's kind of proof about it. Everything that we know in history, part of it comes from testimony, people telling stories, people writing history. Now, that doesn't mean there's no empirical evidence. Uh, We can certainly find empirical evidence as well, but most of it is testimony. Let me give you an example. So I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I believe that George Washington existed. Now, I do not have any evidence to that effect. There is no audio recording of George Washington's voice. There's no video of him. There's nothing, I have nothing that could say, well, this gives me evidence that George Washington existed, but there are stories and there's evidence, other kinds of evidence. There's Mount Vernon and you could find lots of things that point to the fact that a person named George Washington existed, but primarily it is through the testimony of history that I understand about who George Washington is who George Washington is. Now, as Christians, our faith is entirely rooted in a historic event. And this is the historic event. The historic event is that 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish carpenter named Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and that three days later, he was raised from the dead. Now, the entire belief hinges on that one historic event. Did Jesus Was he raised from the dead or not? Our entire faith is hinged on that historic event. Now, here's what is interesting about the Christian faith. While we believe that our faith is rooted in history, we do not believe that our faith is confined to history. That because Jesus rose from the dead and did not die again, he lives forevermore. So the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago has changed the world. It has changed culture. It has changed the course of history. It has changed governments. It changes churches. It changes families. And it has the power to change individuals and change people. Many of us are in the room and we would say, because Jesus lives, my life is different. Something about my life is different. There are things that point us to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And each of us, many of us in the room, can say that we bear witness to the fact that Jesus was alive. And we think, well... 2,000 years later, 
That's the kind of evidence we're looking for. But what we fail to understand is that 2,000 years ago when it first happened, many of the people then were also looking for evidence. Sometimes the very same evidence that we are looking for. And so in this series that we're calling Alive, we have been looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus and how they impacted the people closest to Jesus in real time to see how that also has the power to impact us. What difference does the resurrection make today? What difference does it make not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that Jesus is alive? So we started out several weeks ago in John chapter 20, and we're going to continue all the way through John chapter 21. And we looked at the very first resurrection appearance of Jesus. And and he appeared to a woman named Mary. And, and she was by herself. There were not, None of the disciples were with her. It was just, just Mary. And so Mary goes back and tells the other disciples that same evening, Jesus showed up uh, to the disciples and revealed himself to them. But there was one of the disciples were missing that night, uh, a disciple by the name of Thomas. And when Jesus shows back up, in the passage we're going to look at today, when Jesus shows back up to give evidence to Thomas that he is who he says he is, he shows him the scars in his hand and in his side. And here's why that's so important for us. Because I believe, I believe that our scars, the scars that we bear today, Maybe for you it's a scar of a painful divorce. Maybe for you it's the scar of a lost loved one, a child. Maybe for you it's the scar of a season in your life when you were bound up in addiction. Maybe it was a scar from a season in your life where you knew you were making terrible mistakes and you were being hurtful to all the people around you. And you look back on that season of your life and that is just, you would say, that is a scar on my history. Here's why this story is so important for us today. Because if we will allow them, Scars can be redeemed as evidence to the power of the resurrection. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope you will remember that. That every scar that you bear, every emotional scar you bear, every scar you look back on your life, every, it, you might say, well, that was a terrible, terrible mistake. And if you were honest, you would say it wasn't even a mistake because I did it on purpose. But every single one of those scars has the potential to be redeemed as evidence to the power of the resurrection. If you have a Bible, open with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to begin or pick up where we left off from last week down in verse 24. And if you've missed some of our series, we invite you to visit our website, ssbc.org, or you can download our app. And uh, our live stream are there, or the podcasts are there if you're interested in, in hearing some of the other messages in the series. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas... Also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now we don't know where Thomas was or why he wasn't in the room that night, but haven't you been that person before? Like something big happened and that was the one day you missed school? Like, or that was the one day you didn't go to the office. And so you go back in the next day and everybody's like, you are not going to believe what happened. And they start telling you what happened and you're, right, you're like, you're right, I don't believe what happened. And you think, why did I miss that day? So that's kind of Thomas's story. Thomas was not there. Jesus shows up and all the guys are talking about it. You won't believe it. Jesus showed up. He walked right through the locked door, said, peace be with you. He was here. He talked to us. And here's Thomas' response. But, when, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas was basically saying, the only thing that would convince me is irrefutable 
empirical evidence. If I'm going to believe this, I need some proof. I need some evidence. Now, before we're too hard on Thomas, and a lot of people are hard on Thomas, they call him Doubting Thomas, but we're going to find out in just a little bit. Maybe that's not the, maybe that's not the best name for Thomas. Before we're too hard on him, it, wouldn't that be your response? I mean, come on. If you showed up and you knew that Jesus was crucified and you had seen public crucifixions and they're going to start telling you that Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, your first response is probably going to be very similar to Thomas' response. You know what, maybe it's true, but I'm going to need some evidence. Some of you are here today, and you're not a Christian, and you would say, that's me right now. I just need some evidence. I need something to point to to tell me that this story is true. So look what happens in verse 26. A week later, so now we go from Sunday, the, the very first Easter Sunday, to one week later, it's again Sunday, which was the first day of the week. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So this time, Thomas didn't miss the meeting. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's exactly what happened the week before when Jesus appeared to the disciples. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. And by the way, this is for free. This isn't part of this week's message. So this, you get this entirely for free. What, what, does it say, what does it say about the condition of the doors? What did it say? They were locked. Remember, they were locked last week, too. That the disciples were afraid and they were hiding behind locked doors. Jesus showed up to them last week and said, hey, as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. Go out and tell people. It is a week later and those rascals are still locked behind the doors. They have not moved. They are still sitting in the same place where they were when Jesus showed up. The resurrected Jesus himself in bodily form, walked through a door and said, peace be with you as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. Leave this room and go out of it. And for 2,000 years, Christians are still sitting behind locked doors of churches, failing to do what Jesus called us to do. It's one of the reasons at Southside we believe not just that we're called to gather together to worship God and not just to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we are called to go in the power of the Holy Spirit to be the hands and feet of Jesus in your workplaces and in your schools. We cannot stay behind locked doors and follow Jesus. It's impossible. Even if you stay behind the locked doors of a church, you are not following Jesus if you're staying behind the locked doors. That's for free. Okay, all right. So, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, so Jesus has showed up. Here he is. Remember, Jesus was not in the room when Thomas said what he said about, I'm not going to believe unless I see his hands and feet. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Man, I love that. (laughs) Jesus just walks right in and says, Thomas, you want to see proof? Here, here are my hands. Now, and I want you to think about this. Jesus was crucified just about 10 days ago. And for those of you who are in the medical community, I want you to think about the wounds that Jesus suffered on the cross. Because what this passage tells me is that even though Jesus was resurrected in bodily form, his wounds were very much what they had been when they were inflicted upon him on the cross. And Jesus takes his hand And puts it right up in front of Thomas. This is not something pretty. This is not something glorious. This is something raw and ugly and messy. He says, here, Thomas, you want to see, here, see it. Put your finger in it. Here, let me, let me, let me lift up my, let me lift up my shirt here. Let me, let me 
invite you to put your hand in my side and see the wounds if you want proof and you want to believe. Look at Thomas' response, verse 28. Then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now this is really so important in the Gospel of John. Because this is the very first time that anybody has acknowledged that Jesus is God. This is the first time that somebody said it. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. When John started his gospel, and if you've been with us for three years, you know we we started the gospel of John about three years ago. At the very, very beginning of John chapter 1, John said, when he set the whole book out, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Spoiler alert. This guy, this is God, okay? He says it at the very beginning. You go through the entire gospel of John and all the people that Jesus meets. People get close. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. People were getting close to it, but it was only at the very end of John's gospel, almost like bookends, when Thomas, the person we call Doubting Thomas, is the very first person to say it out loud. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want you to know something. If you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is talking about us right there. That's what he's talking about. He he is looking down through time and space and he is looking down and he is seeing you sitting right where you are. And you say, but you know what? I still have doubts. He knows you have doubts. I still don't understand everything. He knows you don't understand everything. But he's saying you are blessed because you did not have the advantage that the early disciples have. Jesus showed up and he, Thomas could put his hand in the, knoll, in the scars of his hands. Thomas could see the, 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 where the sword pierced his side. We don't have that benefit. But he says, blessed are those who will not see and yet they will still believe. How is it that 2,000 years later we still come to believe in the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. And I think it's because of the same evidence that Thomas saw. It's because of the scars. And it's because of the scars that we have seen on other people who are Christ followers. It's because of the scars of the church. Somehow when we see the scars of somebody else and that scar gives evidence of the power of Jesus to to extend love and grace and mercy to that person... When we see the power of the resurrection in that person's life as they have overcome horrible wounds and horrible experiences, something inside of me gains confidence and faith when I look at the scars of the people around me. Scars have the power to demonstrate for us the potential to see the resurrection in every human scar, in every scar of the church. So I want us just, as we kind of wrap this up, to, to look at the scars of Jesus and to answer three questions, three specific questions about Jesus' scars. Why did Jesus show his scars to the disciples? Does Jesus still bear the scars of the crucifixion? And what can we learn from the eternal scars of Jesus? So let's take them one at a time. I'm going to give you Two answers to each of these questions. If you're a note taker, uh, you can do that on the back of your bulletin. Why did Jesus show his scars to the disciples? Well, first of all, because they prove that he was the same person who died on the cross. They, they prove that he was that guy. This was not an imposter. This was actually Jesus who suffered and died on the cross. And it was not a ghost who appeared in Jesus, on Jesus' behalf. Look what Luke says in Luke 24, 36 through 39. As he records one of Jesus' appearances. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. 
But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. In other words, they thought he he was a ghost. They thought this is a ghost of Jesus appearing back to us. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, some people have tried to teach down through the ages that Jesus didn't really uh, come back to life in bodily form, that it was just the spirit of Jesus that appeared to his disciples. That doesn't line up with the reports of the Gospels. Jesus said, no, I am here in the flesh. I have been raised from the dead. I am the same one who walked among you, who taught you, who was crucified, who was buried, and I am now alive. I'm that same guy, but it does something else. The scars also demonstrate that the resurrection is not only spiritual, but it's also physical. It's not just spiritual, but it's physical. And this is so, I think this is so important for us as the church because I think if there is one sort of false understanding that Christians have about the resurrection, it it may revolve around this idea right here. Because you see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in bodily form. His dead body, life was infused back into it and he came back to life. Now, the Greek way of thinking and the Roman way of thinking at the time was that everything about our bodies is sinful and bad. Bodies are bad. Physicality is bad. Everything spiritual is good. So the whole object of sort of the Roman theology or Greek mythology was that the best thing we can do is sort of shed this mortal shell and our spirits be set free. That that we could, our spirits, our bodies are what confine us to sin lust greed gluttony everything about our bodies is what leads us into sin if our spirit could somehow be set free from our body then that would be that would be heaven we'd be set free so when the early christians started telling the romans and the greeks that jesus was resurrected from the dead they looked at them like they were crazy i mean the 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 greeks would have said why in the world would anybody want their body back. That just doesn't make any sense. Everything about the body is bad. Everything about the body is corrupt. But here's what God is saying through the power of the resurrection. That God said, when I created the heavens and the earth and I formed man, men and women, I, when I put men together out of the dust of the earth, when I created woman, I, I said it was good. And God is on a mission to redeem all of creation. That when we die, our eternal existence is not just some ethereal, bodiless presence with God. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the redemption of everything that God has made. Body, soul, and spirit. This is why, this is why for 2,000 years, it has been Christians at the front edge of starting hospitals all around the world. This is why Christians have been at the front edge of starting orphanages around the world. Because we believe physical things matter. That God is redeeming all things. This is why Christians should, be, should care about the environment. Because this world is not disposable. This is God's creation. We've been entrusted this creation to steward it. Everything about the physical world is something that God is working to redeem. And when Jesus showed up in bodily form, he is saying, listen, this isn't, the resurrection just isn't about a spiritual existence. It is about a physical existence. It's about a real existence. So the, the, the resurrection was to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, but it was also to prove that the resurrection was not just spiritual, but it was also physical. So second, second question, does Jesus still bear the scars of his crucifixion? And the answer to that is yes. And here's why. Because they are evidence that sin, death, and the grave will not have the last word. 
Jesus' scars that he still bears are the evidence that we need that proves that sin, death, and the grave will not have the last word. You see, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, when the crown of thorns was placed on his head and the nails were driven into his feet and into his hands, when the sword pierced his side, every single one of those wounds was a declaration that Rome was in charge and that the empire wins, that the religious establishment wins. And every time the disciples thought about those things, they thought, we've been defeated. All their hopes, all their aspirations were on, was on Jesus. And when he endured such awful suffering, every single one of his wounds were proof that they had been defeated, that the empire was going to win, and that Jesus was ultimately defeated. But listen to this. Jesus, three days after crucifixion, is raised from the dead, and he walks back into the upper room, and he shows them his scars. And those scars, which had been evidence that the empire won, were actually proof that God wins. That sin does not have the final word. And so what were, what were evidence, what was proof that Jesus had been defeated, ultimately becomes sort of like a badge of courage. Like it becomes something that demonstrates, hey, you know what? Jesus has overcome these things, and he's got the scars to prove it. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but I know for men, a lot, a lot of men are pretty proud of the scars they have. Like, like, we, like sometimes you even think, like, that, that's going to be a sexy scar. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's going to be a good one. That's going to be good. Why? Because it gives some evidence of some battle. It gives some evidence of some struggle. And you, do, you wouldn't give that scar up because that scar is proof that you overcame. It's proof that you did what you accomplished. You know, when you're a kid and when you're a boy and you're, you know, riding your bike and jumping ramps and you get a big gash on your head somewhere, that's like, that's a, that's a sign of manhood right there. Jesus shows back up in the upper room with his scars and these scars which had been proof of Jesus' defeat, of the defeat of God, suddenly the whole thing is reversed. And what had been tragedy and what had been death is inverted to victory and joy. They're evidence that sin, death, and the grave will not have the last word. And here's something else about the scars. Jesus is never getting rid of them. They're never going away. They are eternal sources of awe and wonder. We don't have time to read all of it right now, but, but Revelation chapter 5, I think, depicts this. If you have a Bible, look at Revelation 5. We'll put it on the screen. Verse 6. This is John, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote Revelation. God gave him, gave him a vision of heaven. And listen to what he said. He's in heaven now, looking at all things. And here's what he said. And I saw the Lamb, which is Jesus. I saw the Lamb standing as though it had been what? How many of you have ever watched a farm an animal get butchered? Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, it's not something you soon forget. And it is not a pretty churchy experience, I'll tell you. And it's interesting to me that when John sees Jesus in heaven, he doesn't see this white, fluffy, bearded, beautifully manicured figure. He says, I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Look what it says down in verse 9 and 10. And they, these are all the angels, the elders in heaven, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open it. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Look at verse 11. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of creation stands around Jesus celebrating the scars of Jesus because they are evidence of God's love and his power to redeem and save mankind from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what, were, what, what might have been signs of the defeat of God ultimately become evidence of his victory. So what can we learn from Jesus' eternal scars? I think there are two things that we can learn. First of all, his scars are reminders that it's not about what you do for your salvation, but it's what he has done. His scars can remind us that, there. listen, we can do all the good works we want to do. We can come to church every Sunday. We can read the Bible. We can try to keep a moral code. But it is not by our good works that we have been saved. Because if our good works could have saved us, there was no need for Jesus to endure such awful suffering and to bear such terrible scars. His scars remind us that no matter what good things I do, all my good works are like dirty rags compared to what Jesus did. That his scars remind us that I am not saved because I try to keep the law. I am not saved because I am more moral or righteous than someone else. I am not saved because of my church participation or attendance. I am not saved by anything that I have done. I am saved because he suffered. I have been redeemed because he died. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah 53 verse 5 But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus' wounds, Jesus' scars remind us that it's nothing I've done that's led to my salvation. It's what Jesus has already done. Listen to this poem written almost 100 years ago by Edward Shillito called the scars of Jesus. Listen to this, beautiful words. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. What other God is going to suffer and die for his creation? What other God is willing to give up so much to see the men, the women, the boys, and the girls he loves so much drawn back to him? His scars are reminders that it's not what we do, but it's what he has already done. But there's a second thing I think that we can learn from the scars of Jesus. Because he bears the scars of our sin, our scars can serve as testimonies of his love and mercy. Think about this for just a second. Every time that you have sinned, and listen, I'm not even going to define sin for you, okay? You define sin however you want to define sin, all right? I'm not trying to pass judgment. I'm just saying that I know in my own life, I know there are times I've sinned. You know that there are times you've sinned. You know there are ways that you've fallen short. Whatever that is, every time any of us have sinned, that sin is a scar on the body of Jesus if we allow him to absorb our sins, if we see the cross as our salvation, then, uh, then the sins that we have committed become scars on the body of Jesus. 
And because he bears our, the scar of our sins, our scars can serve as testimonies of his love and mercy. Your scars, I don't know what they are. They're probably different for everyone in the room. But you just think back through your life, through those times where you say, yeah, I bear the scar for that choice. I bear the scar for that decision. I bear the scar of that first marriage, that second marriage. I bear the scar of that lifestyle that I chose to live. I bear the scar of those addictions. I bear the scars of the broken relationships. Just think back to those scars. They have the potential to reveal the love and the glory of God. So much about the Christian faith is intangible. Think about this. We we as Christians claim that our entire faith hinges on something that happened 2,000 years ago. And we expect people to believe that, to know that. It's so intangible. It can be so hard. But there is something that makes the Christian faith tangible. There is something that that we can that that demonstrates the power of the resurrection to change life the power of God to forgive sins and you know what it is it's the scars in the church and they're not pretty they're messy but that's the whole point that Jesus entered into what was messy Jesus invited Thomas put your hand in my side it's messy but it's in the wounds of the church that God's love and grace and the power of the resurrection are revealed When people like you who are sitting here, who have stories and scars, and God has delivered you and redeemed you, when other people see your scars and they see the love and the grace of Jesus, they see evidence to the power of the resurrection through the scars in your life. And suddenly what was intangible becomes tangible. What was far away becomes near. What was theoretical becomes practical. When we're willing And we're willing to allow our scars to become evidence of his testimony, of his grace and the power of his resurrection. Do you believe, do you really believe that Jesus has the power to bring what was dead back to life? Do you really believe that Jesus has the power to take that which was broken and make it whole again? Do you really believe that Jesus can take that which was filthy and dirty and embarrassing And make it something beautiful. Do you believe that he has the power to change? To change that which were ugly into something beautiful. Into something clean. So in the year 2014... If you were uh, worshiping with us here uh, in 2014, you may remember that we did a a very similar time of worship where we had cardboard testimonies. Um, What what you don't see that happens between services and the way God works between is is a front row seat that that I get that I'm so grateful for. But um, in 2014, uh, Tina, my friend Tina, was brave enough to share her scar Uh, about being molested as a child and the way God had healed that scar and turned that scar into something beautiful, a story of redemption and forgiveness. And sitting in the congregation that day uh, was another friend of mine, Mirandi, who saw that. And that had been her story too. And through a long process of healing and a community that came around 
today, Mirandi walked across the stage with Tina. And I, the reason I point that out to you, and the reason I say that isn't to embarrass them, actually, I have both of their permission to share this, and they were gracious to share it, is because your scars and your willingness to be honest about what God has done in your life and the way he has brought healing and wholeness to you, they have the power to change somebody else as they see evidence of the power of the resurrection. That the resurrection is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It is something that happens over and over and over again. For every parent who finds the strength to overcome the loss of a child, for every widow who finds the courage to move on without her husband and live in the hope that death is not the end, for every person who prays for a child who's caught in the bonds of addiction with a hope that they can be set free by the power of Jesus, the scars are proof that Jesus is alive and that his grace and mercy are enough. And that his resurrection has the power not just to change the world 2,000 years ago and not just to change history and cultures and churches, but it has the power to change you and you and you and you. And every one of those wounds that you bear right now, every single wound, if you can If you can accept Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, that wound can become a scar that magnifies the glory and the grace of God. But you have to be willing to let go of it. You have to be willing to trust him. Trust him who bears the scars on your behalf. That what he has done has set you free and has changed your scars as a sign of pain to a badge of victory. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray. And we're going to sing a song of commitment, a song of response. And and some of you may feel led just to come and pray at these steps. Maybe pray with me. We'll have some deacons and some others who would be around who would be willing to, to pray with you. The song we're going to sing may not be known to everyone, but the the words are so beautiful because it talks about a beautiful exchange, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. That you have the opportunity to exchange the wounds that have been inflicted upon you or maybe wounds that you even inflicted upon yourself. You You have the ability to exchange them today for the scars of Jesus, the scars he suffered on the cross for you. That's the offer. That's the invitation. He stands with his arms open wide, the scars fully visible. And just like he invited Thomas 2,000 years ago, so today the scars of people, men and women, boys and girls, the scars that you've seen testified about this stage stand as invitations to you. Stop doubting and believe. Will you stand together as we pray and then as we sing? We come to you today and we are moved, Father, not just by the testimonies that are on the stage, although they're certainly moving, but we come just incredibly humbled and honored and grateful for the reason that these stories of transformation can be told. And it's because of your grace and your peace and your love and your mercy. It's because Jesus was willing to suffer and die and bear the scars of our sin, that our scars become signs of your victory. Lord, today, 
I pray for those who are bearing the wounds inflicted upon them, inflicted upon themselves, that today they might exchange those, turn those over to you, and they might see in the scars of Jesus all the evidence they need of your love and your compassion and the power to change their life. We pray it would be so today in Jesus' name.